Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Rick Rule, yeah, that guy from Sprott. We talk about 800-pound gorillas, quantitative easing, intelligent investing, and things that smart people do. And hopefully you hear a side to Rick that you've not heard before. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Rick. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing well, and I have to say I'm a fan of Crux Investor, so I'm delighted to be invited to participate. Thank you. That's a pleasure. I, th- I think we could almost cut it there. That's, that's perfect for us. Uh, <laughs> But given we've made all this effort to get together, let's talk. So, um, Rick, you know, we obviously know um, Sprott and Rick Rule from all of the uh, you know, work that you, you do in the mining sector. Very well known in North America, not so much over here. Um, so I wonder if you could take some time out and sort of share a little bit about you and the company. Uh, delighted. Uh, as you can see, by now I'm a rather elderly investor. I'm 67. I've spent my entire adult life uh, in natural resource investing and investing management. Um, I built a business called Global Resource Investments and another business called Resource Capital Investments Corp, which I sold to Sprott in 2010. And I have been since then Sprott's largest shareholder uh, and a, a Sprott employee. I've actually been reasonably uh, involved in Australian markets going back to 1988. Uh, I, I tend to be more active in Australia when Australians aren't. Uh, I, I have found that in uh, local markets like that, the bear markets are more conducive uh, to my presence than bull markets. Uh, so I remember 1989, 1990, 1991 as an example, attending diggers and dealers uh, and having a strange sense that I was a very pretty girl in a short skirt, uh, uh, a new a new check in Kalgoorlie <laughs> was very, very welcomed. In good markets, of course, uh, it's difficult for non-Australian investors to participate uh, against the locals. But in bad markets, when Australians go on strike, it's an extraordinarily good market, even for foreigners like myself. So as to Sprott, uh, we're Canadian domiciled and listed, but most of our business is in the U.S. We manage something in excess of $12 billion in assets, virtually all of which is involved in precious metals and natural resources. As you suggest, we have about $7 billion in New York Stock Exchange traded physical precious metals trusts and ETFs. Then we have a variety of bespoke uh, equity strategies. And we are, I think, the largest provider of uh, development and bridge credit uh, for non-investment grade uh, issuers, that is sort of sub-BHP issuers. Uh, and we have a fairly small uh, but active uh, wealth management business, active primarily in the United States and Canada, but also, frankly, with uh, many, many individual clients from both Australia and New Zealand. Okay, I mean, nice, nice summary. I'm, I'm going to explore a little bit deeper, dig a little bit deeper, please, because we're we're speaking to some of the, you know the, the great and the good in in the mining space. We're trying to understand the mentality, um, and, you know, and perhaps what drives them. But let's start off with. I mean, where were you brought up? You know, what was your upbringing like? This will expose my first great career mistake. Uh, I was born and brought up in San Jose, Jose, California, the heart of Silicon Valley, that had zero interest in technology. (laughs) I just spotted spotted the glaring error, right? Okay. As a a consequence of a very poor decision made uh, uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I, I became merely rich as opposed to filthy rich. Um, but I uh, was, uh, even at that point in time, interested in particularly agriculture, mining, and oil and gas, uh, and attended the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, beginning in 1970. As a consequence, both of them having a degree program in natural resource finance, which wasn't available elsewhere in this hemisphere. And also because in 1970, a young American was going to have to travel. Uh, Most of them went to Vietnam, (laughs) and I chose to go to Canada. 
which I still think in retrospect was a very good decision. Uh, Vietnam was warmer, but I didn't want to be shot at or have to shoot at other people, so I chose Canada. And I've been involved in natural resource investing literally ever since. For me, it was a wonderful, wonderful career choice. Uh, I had a uh, interesting and varied life, and I've met a wonderful crew of people. Uh, it's truly been a blessing. But what did you think you were going to be? I mean, you know, back in the back in the day, you were making those choices. You know, you, you've, you've got different visions and uh, pictures in your head. This will expose me uh, again as a real nerd. <laughs> My career aspiration when I was 18 was to become an international taxation lawyer specializing in natural resources. Uh, how an 18-year-old who should have been interested in girls or something uh, decided to become an international taxation lawyer specializing in natural resources is beyond me till, till today. That's <clears throat> I had the extraordinary. good fortune to befriend uh, an international tax lawyer in Vancouver uh, and uh, asked him for career advice. Uh, and he said he'd come to know me fairly well and he thought that I'd be miserable as a lawyer. Uh, and that I should become a businessman, an investor, and in fact, hire lawyers. And he introduced me to one of the all-time deans of value investing, deep value investing, Peter Kundal, mm -hmm. who became my first financial mentor uh, and uh, was responsible for my original uh, investing discipline, which was value and deep value, particularly in natural resources much of the style uh, that I have today, not all, but much of the style I have today, uh, owes itself, in fact, to the influence of Peter Kundal. Uh, for those listeners that you have that are sort of uh, into the value side of the business, Peter, Gra uh, Peter Kundal is sort of the, the holy grail of deep value and the concept of valuing redundant assets and peak of cycle, trough of cycle, valuation disparities. Right, and would you say that's that's been your philosophy ever since? Maybe business philosophy, yes, but is it your own personal philosophy too in the way that you go about your everyday life? I suspect it is, frankly. Um, many value investors uh, have odd personalities, and I would certainly buy off on that. Uh, I know uh, for Peter Kundal, a, a book that was of importance to him, uh, Coming of Age, was Human Action uh, by Ludwig von Mises, which turned out to be, other than perhaps securities analysis, no, even including securities analysis, uh, Human Action was probably the most important book I've ever written, in I've, I've ever read, pardon me, in terms of uh, understanding human motivation, both in terms of finance and in other aspects of our lives, and also volition, uh, how we get along with each other and, and how we function. So I would suspect that the psychological formulation that goes into a value investor, the, the sort of tolerance or even reverence, frankly, for being lonely <laughs> uh, permeates other aspects of my life. Well, I, I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, we'd long, long held that. I think for our team, we want them to be able to you know, read people, read situations, read sentiment in the market. And I think never has it been truer than today and maybe what we're about to step into in terms of the unknown reaction after COVID, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. Um, can I let's let's get on to Sprots? I think that's given us a, a little flavour of what what you've been about. Um, but can we? You've told us about some of the things that you have built with Sprot. You've sold into Sprot and what they're trying to build. But you know, what, what's the end game there? Because I know you're a 67 sprightly, very dynamic individual. But this, what, what are you trying to get out of this? And what is Sprott trying to build? That's Sprott the company trying to build? I, I <laughs> humbly, I would suggest that we're trying to build the finest focused natural resource investment manager on the planet. Uh, and I think, frankly, we're pretty close to being there. Um, our franchise is mostly precious metals. Uh, and the consequence of that, I think, that the next two or three years are going to be extraordinarily kind to us. The nature of all extractive industries, but particularly precious metals, is that they're both capital intensive and cyclical. And we need to think for our clients and for the organization itself uh, uh, beyond precious metals. My experience is that precious metals markets give you three or four extraordinarily good years and then three or four or five or six uh, fairly painful years. 
but if you are diverse to, diversify across the whole specter of natural resource investments, which is to say, if you search in a forward-thinking manner for bear markets that will become bull markets, uh, you will do well over time. And that certainly worked for me. Uh, I am one of those who has come to understand that in cyclical businesses, it's bear markets that are safe and bull markets that are in fact risky. Um, we have been through uh, maybe the mother of all bear markets in precious metals equities beginning 2011 through 2019. Uh, our thinking has brought us that bear markets are the very authors of bull markets. Uh, and so while our competitors were either in fetal position doing nothing uh, or diversifying into businesses that they knew and loved like marijuana, uh, we were focused on natural resources and precious metals. So the consequence is that we have been working 10 years to be the overnight successes that we're enjoying now. Our suite of products, as an example, include these New York Stock Exchange physical precious metals trusts, which have tax advantages for US investors, but they end up being for investors who are concerned about the structure of the financial services business or concerned about the political structure of, of countries, very good vehicles in the sense that they're 100% precious metals based. They don't accept deposit receipts or anything like that. So there's never a chance that a holder in our trust could be the unsecured creditor of a counterparty. These were really built for bespoke precious metals portfolios, built in fact, because before we constructed the product, we had a lead order for $250 million from a guy named Sprott uh, the same guy whose name was on the door. <laughs> so when we talk about a bespoke product, that was truly a, a bespoke product. You're in the fortunate position that you've got money. You, this has been building up over time. If you if you were maybe starting off today, you you might have to approach things differently. So, but but let, let, let's let's stick with this. Do you think you are the 800 pound gorilla in the room? Can you can you compete because you are so niche? Um, in terms of natural resources, or particularly precious metals, and I know you're trying to build a portfolio of products here, but can you claim to, say, move markets or move sentiment or change sentiment? We don't try to move markets. Uh, we are definitely trying to change sentiments. Um, our whole uh, marketing uh, and advertising thesis involves uh, investor education uh, and investor outreach. And so efforts like these, as an example, consume most of the time and treasure that we spend on marketing. And we are definitely trying to change the way both institutional and retail uh, in investors address the market. And we're, all we're also trying to change in our own way the way that issuers face the market. So in terms of trying to change sentiment, I would say that's an important part of who Sprott is at its core. Uh, trying to move markets? No, not so much. The markets are bigger than us. As to competition, we are blessed and cursed uh, with a reasonable amount of competition. Uh, at the very top in terms of equity markets, of course, would be BlackRock. Uh, they forget from time to time that they have a precious metals business. It, it doesn't matter much to them, but, but they matter an awful lot to the market. Uh, and there are, of course, lots of investment banks that are agents as capital providers. We're probably unusual in the sense that uh, we're as much principal as agent if there's a transaction, uh, either lending or equity transaction that comes out of Sprott, it's likely that the lead order for that transaction is Sprott. So in terms of our capital markets group, think of a sell side group with buy side roots, <laughs> which I think is healthy. Uh, I think investors should look at whether or not the agents are in fact are uh, enthusiastic consumers of their own investment products. Right. As brought, we certainly eat our own because it's the right thing to do. And over 40 years, it's tasted pretty good. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. You've done very, very well out of it. And, you know, your name appears with most of the conversations I'm having at the moment. This, you seem to have a little piece of the pie. Um, but tell me specifically about what you're trying to do. When you're trying to say, when you're saying, I'm trying to change sentiment, and that could be, a, you know, at a corporate level, whether it be the issuer or otherwise, what is it you want them to do? I mean, clearly some branding component, because I, I see you rather eloquently, um, you know, you've got a very cultured language, and I see that I see these interviewers rather either doe-eyed or glazed over, not quite, you know, grasping what the importance of what you're saying. So I, I do enjoy you, but in the, when you're having these conversations, but 
what what is it that you're trying to get out of the market and what do you think the you know immediate benefit to Sprott is? Is it just at a corporate level? That's that's all you're going to hope to affect change in. I think that the first thing we'd like to do is on the retail investor side, cause people to exercise common sense uh, and work a little harder. Common sense turns out to be fairly uncommon, uh, and many speculators. Um, make many, many correctable mistakes. Uh, many speculators seem to be got a bunch, uh, and we would like the process to be more focused. Uh, we believe in the contrarian approach to natural resource investing. We think that the first truth uh, is that bear markets are the authors of bull markets, and bull markets are the authors of bear markets. And so we would ask uh, our clients and people who propose to become our clients to uh, adopt a portfolio that's more contrarian and more value oriented uh, and less uh, momentum oriented. We have also learned that in uh, businesses below a billion dollars in market cap in particular, that the most important asset on the company's books are seldom physical. Uh, they're much more commonly human. Uh, we have learned that uh, almost all of the value delivered to resource equity investors over the last 40 years has been delivered by less than 5% of the management teams employed in the sector. So we try to cause our clients to uh, invest uh, all of their money, if we can talk them into that, with tier one management teams, with management teams that have been serially successful in the past. Uh, and in fact, uh, confine their activities to companies where the business focus uh, is uh, the same as the business focus that the management teams have enjoyed success on in the past. If someone comes to me and he says, you know, Rick, uh, you know, I've listened to your blogs. Uh, I've been a success in mining because I uh, turned around and operated successfully a gold mine producing gold mine in Archean terrain in French-speaking Quebec. But the value proposition in front of me is that the same person is exploring rather than producing for copper gold <laughs> in the Spanish-speaking Peruvian Altiplano <laughs> in tertiary volcanics. While the person may have been a success, it's arguable that the task at hand is so different that his or her success is irrelevant. So we would ask our clients to employ common sense. We would ask them to have a value orientation. And in fact, search out sales uh, rather than search out sectors that have already performed. Uh, and we would ask them to pay particular attention to the management teams uh, and the concurrence between the management team's uh, resumes uh, and their task at hand. We would also finally, at least in the speculative aspects of our business, uh, understand, we would ask the clients to understand uh, when they are, are analyzing uh, a company that they look for the process of answering unanswered questions in exploration. It might be, uh, will the drill hole prove the third dimension um, in uh, development? It might be on time, on budget, that kind of thing. But if you focus on answering the unanswered question, uh, understanding where value might be delivered, uh, you will do better over 10 years than if you skip from story to story with less of your own involvement in your own portfolio. So I would say that that's what we're trying to we're trying to cause to occur. Okay. With the uh, okay, I, high I, net worth I, retailing. I, I, yeah, so I, and, I, and I buy that. But do you think that retail investors or high net worths even family officers are equipped to do that, I'm, you know, because I, I would you know, put it to you that they don't know what questions to ask, let alone look for. Um, so what, that leaves them in a very difficult yes, position. The answer to that is yes. I think that uh, high net worth retail investors and family offices, more small family offices, have an advantage over other investors in, first of all, that they know the client themselves better than anyone can. They need to be prepared to do the work. Uh, but the truth is that when you're competing with many money managers, uh, money managers often uh, aren't invested in their own product, first of all. 
<laughs> they're employees rather than partners. Uh, but more importantly, uh, they have a very short-term orientation, a very short-term focus. Many managers seem to have trauma holding stock over a long weekend. When uh, a high net worth investor or a family office can take a three-year or four-year or five-year point of view, which is important. It's important, however, that the investor do the work. Uh, many uh, people who transfer accounts to us, including family offices, uh, present us with a laundry list of securities, 60 or 70 securities. And it's impossible that they could know all that they need to know about every security. So as a rule of thumb, uh, I ask high net worth retail investors to own in their portfolio the number of speculative companies that corresponds with the number of hours per month that they're prepared to spend working on their portfolio. You don't need to spend an hour a month perhaps on BHP or Rio uh, or Exxon. Uh, you have to have a point of view of where we are in the economic cycle, certainly. Uh, but if you are uh, involved in uh, smaller names, uh, I think it's really, really important that you yourself, not just your advisor, you yourself read the annual report, you read the proxy, uh, you read the various disclosure documents, whatever form they take place in, uh, and you ask informed questions of your advisor, be he or she with Sprott or anyone else. It's really, it's really uh, the proprietor's involvement in his or her own portfolio that ultimately determines the success or failure of that portfolio. Agreed. Do, do your homework. Should, that drum should be beaten loud and, and loud and clear and repeatedly. Um, so that's great. Can we come back to you, though, in terms of your blended portfolio approach? Because it's that you can have commodities which are in a bull cycle and others which are uh, uh, in, in a bear, bear markets, right? So I'm thinking uranium, for instance, has not been flavor of the month for the last few years. And, but you were, you were pro it, uh, but then you realized gold was going to go shooting past it on the outside lane. So you, sw you, you switched cars. Well, you didn't switch cars. You, you, there was another horse in the race for you there. So you've got options there because you can sit back. Because one of your, my favorite phrases that you use is the, um, it's the, I will be correct eventually, or words to that effect, uh, <laughs> which is when you've placed a bet and you can sit back and wait. Um, which, you know, some people have the luxury of doing. And I think, you know, retail perhaps get a little bit more frustrated than you do. You're, you're saying I've got foresight. But, but you're, you're all in on gold at the moment, which is great. Fantastic. Um, but do you, do you feel that, therefore, you've, you've got the luxury of a different type of approach? You've got a different business model to retail and family offices, haven't you, in effect? Uh, maybe. Uh, uh, because it's mine, I think it's correct. <laughs> I'm not going to change. I think they should. But that's... You know, I think, first of all, I think that the wind is in gold sails. I think that the policy response from the political class worldwide uh, is awfully likely, maybe not certainly, certainly, but probably going to continue to propel precious metals higher. And the consequence of that is that when the higher gold price becomes reflected in the balance sheets and the income statements of the producers that they will follow, like they have in the last eight recoveries from oversold bottoms. That doesn't keep me out of the uranium space. Uh, the exact quote to demean myself was, I usually forget that there's a, a difference between inevitable, which I almost always get right, and imminent, which I always get wrong. Um, what I've learned at age 67, however, is that uh, uh, three to five years uh, is not an interminable length of time. Uh, in my career now, I've been through nine five-year cycles. And oddly, while I have left less time on earth and time should be more precious, uh, I become much more patient. So um, I see uh, for a variety of reasons, the pressure off the uranium price to go higher. Uh, I had believed two years ago that it was uh, sort of 18 months before the Japanese reactor fleet restarted. Uh, and in that case, I wasn't early, I was wrong. Uh, but I love the arithmetic associated with the uranium. I love the amount of energy that can be generated from a fairly small amount of fuel. I love the fact that if you have seven or eight billion dollars uh, into a reactor and that reactor is using, say, a million pounds of fuel, the price of uranium is actually irrelevant to you, uh, relevant to the cost of the capital employed, regulatory affairs and things like that. 
So if the price is 30 US dollars a pound, you use it. If it's $60 a pound, you use it. If it's $120 a pound, you use it. The price of the input, the price of the uranium is irrelevant to the price of the output, the electricity. And if you have a circumstance like today where the stuff is priced at 60, but the fully loaded cost to produce it, including cost of capital, which the industry never talks about, is 50, that means that the industry worldwide is losing sort of $20 a pound uh, and doing I think you said 60, you meant 30, yeah? The price is 30. We're selling it for 30. Yeah, okay. Uh, but fully loaded, in, including cost of capital, and importantly, including prior year write downs, which companies never like to talk about, the total cost associated with producing a pound of uranium worldwide, uh, we believe exceeds $50 a pound. So if you're making this stuff for 50 total cost and selling it for 30, uh, losing $20 a pound, and of course being a miner trying to make it up on volume, um, over time, that's simply unsustainable. And I would suggest to you that the price of something that has to go up and can go up, will go up. I yeah. just can't tell you when. I won't. I won't even ask, because I think I've, I've long lost faith in the ability to call that market. I should say that the, the math is fantastic. The reality is somewhat more opaque uh, in that inventory and mobile inventory is, it seems to be an unknown. For such a small market, right. that's quite extraordinary. Um, well, let, let's, let's, let's kind of move on from, well, actually, just talk about your range just a little bit more, because obviously there's a lot of, um, COVID has impacted uh, supply. You, you've been talking about the demand, demand side uh, there partially, but the supply side um, has been knocked for six, to use a cricketing analogy, whereby 25 to 40 million pounds taken out of the market, depending on how long this goes on in for, because it's rather indeterminate at the moment. Um, you're, you, so, there's, so there's hopefully a big, big um, better be careful of my wording here, there, there's, a, there's a wave of um, price discovery to happen, which, which is great. Are you at all concerned about the lost opportunity cost, having had your money tied up there for the last three, four years. You could have come back in now, made your cannabis money, made your Bitcoin money. I resent it, uh, <laughs> but it's a cost of doing business for it me. Is, it is. Uh, yeah, it's a cost of doing business. The last uranium bull market, uh, which I was early on too, uh, I began to come into that market in 1998, uh, and I guess the market started to move in 2002, um, I, I had the same circumstance. I had foregone rent in the money that I had employed in the sector for four years. But the truth is, in that bull market, the five uranium juniors that had survived the 20-year bear market that led up to that bull market were such extraordinary performers in that brief bull market. The worst of the five, the poorest performing of the five, generated 22 to 1 returns. And what you find, pardon the pun, is that the sort of explosive upside in the better uranium juniors is so much that they can that they can um, amortize almost any time value of money uh, discount that you want to put in place. Um, do you think that's a re realistic this time around? Given lessons I, I learned, for two reasons, uh, there is still. Uh, a club of investors, if you will, uh, old, fat, rich guys that went through the last bull market. And if you give them half an excuse, uh, I think you'll see a stampede into the few uranium juniors that are left. And the uranium juniors that are left uh, are, you know, pretty tough survivors. They've managed to hang on uh, since 2007, 2008. Um, you know, they managed to hang on for 12 or 14 years of pretty hard markets. It's, it's strange that there were five uranium juniors at the beginning of the last bull cycle. There were 500 uranium juniors at the top of the last bull cycle. And there are probably 12 viable uranium juniors. And I may be overstating the number today. Yeah. Uh, so the same circumstance happens uh, when the investment community gets tempted back into the uranium space. Uh, there is a very small opportunity set available relative to the cash that remembers the last cycle and wants to come into it. But therein lies the problem. There were a lot of people left holding the baby last time around. Yeah. So a lot of people made, sorry, some people made a lot of money 
and a lot of people lost money. And that enthusiasm, and so it comes back to the question of are people equipped to make these sorts of decisions? You know, which horse do you bet on? What, you know, you've given some clues as to what people should be looking at in terms of doing their homework and so forth. But uranium is quite an interesting space. If it does replicate the last cycle, it replicates the last cycle. I think that's accurate. And I, I, I think what you say is true across the broad spectrum of resources. Markets always overcorrect. Uh, what will what happens? Let me rephrase that. What happens is that people who are interested in the uranium narrative uh, will, because of their concern about time value of money, and because of investors' want of immediate gratification, people won't buy the uranium stocks in anticipation of a price move. Uh, the price move itself will be the stimulus that causes people to come into it. Now, this is very strange to me, and I'm guilty of this too, just probably to a lesser degree than some others. Um, we believe that we're sort of, you know, sentient, rational human beings gathering information from the whole cosmos, processing this information, making rational conclusions. And that's not true. Uh, what we really are, are people who are looking for information that supports and makes us comfortable with our existing paradigms. Confirmation uh, bias, bias, we call it. Correct. And the most important information to us is the most recent. Uh, expectations of the future are set by experiences in the immediate past. What that means, oddly, is that uh, let's say that there is a stock that's selling for $10, Okay. And let's say that it comes to the attention of some people and it's selling for $20, but there's been no change in the underlying fundamentals of the company. The investor who owns it at 10 loves it at 20, and the price information justifies his or her narrative. Now, the fact that it's gone from 10 to 20 makes it arithmetically precisely half as attractive as before the move. But oddly, uh, it becomes a Geffen good. Uh, it becomes one that is valued more highly as a consequence of the price than of the value. When uh, I, the first time through in the uranium stocks, uh, came into them, the price of uranium was between eight and 10 US dollars a pound. And I remember thinking, you know, the price could go to 40. Uh, I was wrong, it went to 150 or something. Now, at about 60 US dollars, it was very clear to me that the price of uranium didn't have to continue to go up. Uh, and I began to loosen up. The, the truth was much, much, much too early in retrospect. But I'd rather make that kind of mistake uh, than overstay my welcome. When you look at any commodity uh, subset, what you see is in Canadian parlance, a series over 30 or 40 years of hockey stick graphs. The front side of that chart is a lot of fun, but the back side is just as steep and much less fun. And so you have to have a mechanism, uh, a discipline that will cause you to sell. Uh, if your mechanism is a value-focused mechanism, like mine, uh, what happens is that you will inevitably buy too early and you will inevitably sell too early. Uh, you will make often a stunning amount of money in the middle, but you will punish yourself or at least be punished psychologically for two and a half or three years on the way in. And you'll punish yourself again uh, for the last uh, 12 to 18 months of the bull market. Taking, however, perhaps a fat slug uh, out of the middle. I agree with everything you've said. We, we have a... Uh... We, 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 we do a lot with confirmation bias and trying to understand it from, you know, we, we've, we've spoken with uh, financial psychologists. Would you, did you know they existed? Neither did I. Um, to try and understand people's behavior around these things. And, 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 and I, I do agree with you, you know, when if it's at 10 bucks, it goes to 20 bucks, it's worth, it's worth half. But the impassioned belief of the, of the holder more than doubles, quadruples in effect. And, we, we, and, we, and we've, been, um, we've been attacked and vilified for our, our views on that. And, and, and that's fine. Everyone's allowed their opinion. But it, it is a thing. And I wish people would sign up to your philosophy there, which is at least have a strategy and stick to it. Oh, it's very true. You know, we ask the issuers 
that come to us for a business plan. Uh, and we ask speculators and investors to understand that investing is in fact a business and they should have a business plan too. It doesn't mean that if circumstances change that the plan shouldn't change. Uh, but the truth is understanding why you buy a stock, what the value proposition is, and importantly, what will cause you to sell a stock. Uh, if you're a speculator, the expectation on any individual speculation is failure. Uh, the arithmetic is that if you cut your losses, uh, that your successful speculations will amortize your losers. But that presupposes that when data comes back that tells you that you've made a mistake, that you act on that data and limit the damage that you do to yourself from your mistake. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's absolutely right. But the other, the other part of that, the flip side of that coin is the investments that you're, sorry, the companies that you're about to invest in, do they have a business plan? It's one of the first questions we ask. And I would say mining is extraordinary, like no other sector we've been in, in that I can count maybe less than 20 companies that I've spoken to this year, and we've spoken to about 350, who have a business yes. plan. In every case where uh, an issuer comes to me, particularly a pre-revenue issuer, uh, an explorer, I go in with the mindset that these aren't asset-based businesses, that they're intellectual property businesses, that you employ the intellectual property on a, a piece of ground uh, and, and you propose a thesis and you test the thesis. And so in every circumstance, I ask the people to explain to me what their thesis is uh, and, and what facts cause them to develop the thesis, how they propose to test the thesis, and what is the big unanswered question. Uh, so over the years, about 80% of the companies that I've interviewed uh, have said, oh, that's interesting. We've never thought, it, thought of it in that context, uh, which, you know, I think corresponds uh, with the fact that 80% of junior resource issuers are valueless. The unanswered question for most of the managers is, will I have a salary in 18 months? And I realize that that's a valid question to them, but I'm completely unconcerned about it. Uh, How do you make so me what money? You, yeah, what you say is very uh, When an issuer doesn't have a business plan, uh, the ability to execute a plan that one doesn't have uh, must necessarily be fairly difficult. But the same thing uh, confronts the speculator. When speculators transfer these laundry lists of stocks into me and I try to go through them one by one, the process is always very similar. We'll start, you know, with A, so I don't know, amalgamated aardvark or something like that. Uh, and the, uh, the client will say, well, Rick, what do you think about amalgamated aardvark? And I try to be polite. You know, I say, well, <laughs> I've been untroubled by its existence for <laughs> a long time. Uh, what do you think about it? And they'll say, well, I don't know anything about it. And I'll say, well, why on earth do you still own it? They say, oh, well, Bob Bishop recommended it. Bob Bishop's been retired for 12 years. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Well, why don't you sell it? Well, I can't sell it. Why can't you sell it? I bought it for $4 and it's selling at 25 cents. And if I sell it, I'll lose $3.75. And I said, no, you've already lost the $3.75. The real question is, what are you going to do with the remaining 25 cents? This is a very, very, very simple process. But people need to force themselves to go through it. And they need to force themselves to go through it frequently. I can, I, but I can understand the difficulty of that. Because you're, looking, you're viewing it as a percentage of the remaining capital available, not as a percentage of the original bet, which it sounds like right. it would have been with, uh, with the Aardvark company. Um, but... The, it brings on to a nice point, nice segue off to the fact that, and I, and I had this conversation with Ross Beattie last week, and he sort of acknowledged it existed, which was the mere fact that a Sprott name is associated with a company is enough to draw people in. That's what you would hope. I mean, you've been doing all this marketing, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? There, uh, the fact that the Sprott imprimatur uh, is useful in a market like this is useful to us. We have certainly spent a long time on brand uh, recognition. We would hope that uh, investors pay attention to the company uh, as opposed to merely the fact that Sprott uh, has invested in the company or lent money to the company. Our needs and perceptions, uh, our risk tolerance, the amount of intellectual capital that we can bring to bear uh, might exceed that 
speculator's capabilities. Uh, and it's unlikely that we will give the market for, for prior notice <laughs> when we're going to sell. <laughs> so there you go. At least yeah, I, I think that's tremendously honest of you, because again, when we speak to CEOs, they literally think they've cracked the code, the fact that the Sprott name is is there in some way or another. And it may be a legacy thing because of, of a bet which went wrong, you know, an investment went, which went wrong, but and it's been regurgitated. But you've, you've placed a lot of bets far and wide because you have a different risk tolerance and time thresholds and, and so forth. And as you say, you choose when you exit because your model's different from everyone else's. So you're not, you're, you know, you're not misleading anyone there. But likewise, I would encourage, like you do, that people walk in with their eyes open and understand, does this meet my strategy, my thresholds, before they follow blindly, as it were? So that, that, that's not a negative about Sprott. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a call to retail investors and, and similar to walk in and be clear about why they're making that investment, placing that bet. And you know, what you say, I think, is equally appropriate to institutional investors. You will find, particularly when resources are out of favor, <clears throat> that, uh, well, first of all, the, the ETFs don't consider fundamentals at all. They consider market cap and liquidity, which is to say they tend to favor the oversold, pardon me, the overbought, overpriced equities. Uh, active managers uh, in big multi-sector funds, when the sectors are out of favor, uh, tend to attract managers that are uh, popular with the fund group uh, and who have failed in other specialties. <laughs> you know, if somebody failed as a supermarket analyst and they failed as an auto analyst, but he went to a good school and his family is friends with the family of the CEO, you know, they'll put this man or this young woman uh, in charge of resources because the sector is so small, it's unlikely that they can do much damage there. <laughs> those managers need to employ the same, precisely the same stratagem that you and I are encouraging uh, high net worth uh, retail and family offices to employ. And believe me, uh, that type of discipline is rare among institutions too. I think we're in violent agreements, which is wonderful. <laughs> but uh, again, just exploring the nuances here. But nevertheless, it does happen. People do follow you. And knowing that, are you able to be a little more casual or a little bit more less precise with the, the investments that you do make, knowing that there's a slew of money coming in behind you who know your name, recognize your expertise. I'm talking the Sprott name generally here. Um, and of course yourself. Um, because it, it, it kind of papers over some of the cracks potentially, because money can, can do that. If, if the company has money, it has options. We, um, first of all, employ a variety of strategies with a variety of managers. Uh, and, and there may be some of the managers that, may, that manage small enough, small enough amounts of money that they can be nimble enough to do that. Uh, I tend to have a fairly concentrated portfolio uh, I, try, I, I often enter these circumstances in private placements, which is to say a negotiated transaction with warrants. The good news about that is that when I'm right, I'm usually really wrong. Really right, pardon me. The bad news is that I can't be too nimble uh, with those positions. The idea that I could get into a private placement uh, and then when the hold comes off, that the fewer are engendered by my, my, my participation lets the stock... Uh, trade up and I can sell into it, given the size of the positions that I take uh, and the reasons behind my positioning, that isn't anything that's of particular advantage to me. Now, there are a couple small issuers that we got involved in two years ago that used the furor engendered by our participation, the sort of legitimacy that uh, that conferred on the market, to broaden their constituency. Uh, which lowered their cost of capital, and they were able to raise capital subsequently from people other than ourselves uh, at prices that we as existing shareholders felt were very attractive from our point of view, but they weren't attractive from the point of view of new money. So to the extent that promotional groups, uh, successful promotional groups, use the entree that we have suggested to broaden their constituency, raise their share prices, and lower their cost of capital, we are certainly long-term indirect beneficiaries. But for me, 
having a large position in the stock, let's say it goes from 25 Australian cents to 40 Australian cents, and let's say it now trades $100,000 a day. Uh, if I have a $3 million position, the ability to monetize any of that $100,000 in volume a day is really infinitesimal. I have to be right in order to make money. Yeah. So what type of deals do you like doing? So I've noticed a few deals that you've done recently, which where they're placements. But, you know, if it goes right, if, the, if it helps the company get to where it needs to be, it's great. It's good for you. It's good for everyone. But you're papering these things. So if it doesn't go well, it's a slightly more painful upside for you in that means the company hasn't delivered what it said it was going to. And presumably you're either perfecting some kind of security or you're taking a bigger chunk of the company because they owe you, what well, depends what, you, what, what the terms are, but what's your favorite kind of deal? That really depends. I, I, as you probably know, uh, I prefer now in my declining years to be a lender uh, rather than an equity investor. Uh, the reasons for that are fairly obvious. Uh, in the bear market that we endured uh, in the last decade, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Resource Index, which is the index against we're measured, fell by 88% in nominal terms in value, which is to say that the performance over a decade was minus 88%. In our on-balance sheet lending activities during the same period of time, we generated a 15% annualized return on capital employed. 15% is a handsome headline number in any circumstance, but the relative performance is silly. Uh, really, 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 truly silly. Uh, the idea that I can affect a reward transfer without very much of a risk transfer, and I leave the shareholders and the management team the upside, but I eliminate the downside for me, is extremely attractive. As a lender, uh, if you're lending money to an issuer with no visible means of support, you know, <laughs> no visible means of repayment, uh, you are really, truly an asset-based lender. So we look at all the financial projections associated with the loan. And we certainly consider that, but we look at the management resumes and more particularly, the strategic value of the asset to other buyers, uh, assuming that our borrower wobbled. Uh, and that's the criterion that we use to make a loan. We are more concerned with loan covenants and restrictions, frankly, than we are with coupon because one bad deal uh, obliterates the return on 12 good deals. When you look at our track record relative to our competitors, and by the way, we have some very, very good competitors in that space. Uh, I think what you'll see is that other guys at periods of time have written more business than us, but we have had to foreclose much, much less often. That obscures the fact that probably 40% of the loans that we've written in the last 30 years have violated one or another of the loan covenants over the course of the loan. If we have a management team that is honest with us, uh, works hard and gives us prior notice that they're experiencing difficulty, we'll move heaven and earth to support them. If by contrast, we don't get a call and we don't get a check, then the relationship gets different. Yeah, no, I've, and I've seen both sides of that. I've, I've spoken to someone this morning who, you know, it's a very positive experience with you guys. You know, they basically paid off the first loan, then got another loan, and yep. great. You've allowed them to grow, be able to tell that growth story, deliver that growth story, and you know, likewise, I've you know seen where it hasn't worked out. But no one really wants that. Well, maybe that's not true. Sometimes that's what you know the the, the terms are geared up to do. But you know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. We're not in the loan to own business. Uh, right. We're lenders. Uh, if we have to work out a loan, if we have to operate something, we've failed because it takes us away from what we're good at. And we think it damages our reputation on the street. Uh, you know, we've had a relationship providing both debt and equity to the aforementioned Ross Beattie going back to 1987. Uh, a very, very long time. The first negotiation between Ross and I uh, probably took 35 hard, bloody hours. And I don't think that the sum total of negotiations that we've done since, which probably number 30, uh, have consumed three hours. Once the trust was established and once the basic framework of how we could do business with each other on various assets at various points in time in the cycle was established, the relationship was extraordinarily clear cut 
and very, very mutually beneficial. And I think that's one of the things that Sprott looks towards in its issuer facing business in every circumstance. We'd rather do more business with less people than less business with more people. We'd rather concentrate where we know that we bring value and we know that they bring value. And each side looks to develop a commercial relationship where everyone benefits. Yeah. Um, again, thank you. Um, you're not in the own to lo- loan to own business. I get that. But when that phone, when that second phone call comes in saying we need a little bit more cash, you're in the driving seat, though. Certainly, we construct the loan based on the assumptions that the customer gave us, and we tell them ahead of time what it will cost them if they wobble. So if there are extension fees or if other capital is required, we will support them, but we won't support them for free. If our risk increases, our coupon is going to increase too. That's the way it's going to work. If we're supposed to be able to redeploy the money in 12 months and we don't get to redeploy the money for 30 months, we get it, but there's a cost associated with that because there's a cost to us. Beautiful. Lost opportunity cost, right? Um, We're getting to the end, you'll be glad to hear that's the good news. I'm enjoying the whole process. <laughs> so am I. So am I. So am I. Um, so we, we, we've talked about retail a bit, but can we talk about another component of, which is kind of really a, seems to be prevalent in Canada, North America, more so than the UK, or they're a different sort of animal, which is the broker relationship. Now, as you've got bigger, I asked about you being an 800-pound gorilla in the room. As you've got bigger, do you still have to work with brokers or are they coming to you? I mean, how, how does it work now for a large $12 billion under management company in North America? We, we spend a lot of money uh, cultivating broker and dealer networks. And of course, we have our own small private wealth business. Uh, so we also have direct to retail and direct to institutional. But in terms of the big products, the physical products and the ETF, uh, those are very much distributed through normal distribution channels in North America. We're working now uh, to build out our UK and European uh, relationships, too. We have our first uh, USITS product, uh, mm-hmm. European fund, uh, as a consequence of our acquisition of the Tocqueville Gold Group. Uh, and we have explored from time to time uh, a London listing for some product associated with our lending and yield oriented activities. So I think that you can look to us and us establishing uh, dealer and distribution relationships in Europe to complement what is by now a very deep uh, U.S. distribution network. Fantastic. Okay, I look forward to that. Um, I look forward to, well, certainly hearing hearing about it, and uh, I'm sure it will be imminent once we're allowed to leave our homes on a permanent basis. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your, the ETF funds that you, you manage at the moment, if you don't mind? Sorry. We have, we have two ETFs, the Sprott Gold Miners Index, uh, which is a small <laughs> uh, competitor to the Van Eck product. Um, Ours is different in the sense that it isn't uh, just oriented towards liquidity and market capitalization. It's a factors-based fund. And we take margin and profitability and revenue growth into account. The nervousness that we have with the non-factors-based funds uh, is that large companies, uh, which may be shrinking, uh, tend to dominate the market cap race and we don't want to have a circumstance where we own a lot of a company that's towards the end of its mine life and we face a precipitous decline Uh, so we look as much to margin and revenue growth as we do to uh, market capitalization and liquidity Uh, we have a a a smaller uh, company fund the spot sprott junior gold miners uh, index uh, which is similarly focused uh, on uh, factors rather than market capitalization and liquidity. Uh, the truth is that our ETF offerings are substantially smaller than Vanex uh, ETF offerings, and ours are small enough, this is convenient and inconvenient, uh, that we do not move markets. When there are inflows uh, into the major ETFs, especially the major junior ETFs, Uh, their rebalancing uh, becomes in the near term the most important part of the market capitalization of their constituents. We are unfortunately saved that challenge by virtue of the fact that we're smaller, but factors-based. We suspect that over the course of the decade, 
that we will be able to handily outperform them uh, because we think that a blind ETF will always underperform the market to the exact extent of their fees. And we hope that by tailoring uh, our own offering to some factors which are pretty, pretty easy to construct algorithms for, but are also important over time in success, that our factors-based approach will overcome the impact that they have on markets as a consequence of their gorilla status. Okay. You mentioned a word there, kind of got, got me excited. Algorithm, algorithms. Um, we've been talking this week about naked shorting, and you referred earlier on to the fall, fall of, the, of the junior market over since, what, 2012-ish. Are, I, know, I know Eric is a sponsor of the SaveCanadianMining.com. Are you a believer? I'm not. There uh, you go. With all, with all deference to Eric, uh, he's one of my favorite human beings, and he was as good a partner as I ever had. The junior mining industry's um, worst challenges are all self-inflicted. The general and administrative expense, the zombie listings, um, Without going into too much detail, uh, it is alleged that 25 years ago, in addition to being a money manager, that I occasionally uh, dabbled in promotion uh, without going too deeply into those allegations. I can only say that if it were true, uh, I would have loved to have a good short position against me because a short position is a committed buyer. Uh, we have a little saying down here, he who sells what isn't his and got to buy it back or go to prison. Uh, and the truth is that if uh, you catch somebody short sort of 10 or 12% of your float, they have to buy back. And the question becomes at what price? And that's established by whether you are right or they are right. So if it is in fact true that I was a promoter 25 years ago, uh, I would have been delighted to see large short positions. Um, if your product is good, you win the war against the shorts. Uh, if your product is not so good, you lose the war against the shorts. And so I think the shorts perform a useful function, uh, both for the market uh, and, frankly, for the better companies that long short positions get built up against. There are several companies that I have been around uh, a lot in earlier days. First Quantum, Silver Standard, Pan American Silver, uh, famously in Australia, Paladin, uh, Bima, that all had very large short positions against them. Uh, all of them had circumstances where the backers and the management teams understood the short positions, worked hard to catch the shorts, and use that short, finan uh, short position to uh, do financings that occurred at higher prices than they otherwise would have as a consequence of the short squeezes that were engendered. That's fascinating. Again, worth exploration another day. But I'm going to, because we're only halfway through, I'm going to, I'm kidding. We, <laughs> last question, last question is, huh? I, I can't help every day but watch US politics. It's just golden TV. It's fantastic. It's entertainment that, let, that I didn't know was possible. So as a credit analyst, can you tell me your view of the recent quantitative easing program? And is it possible for a country $24 trillion in debt to ever recover? <laughs> Let's do the arithmetic first. Yeah. Uh, we're not... We're not $24 trillion in debt. We're $130 trillion in debt. It's, it's, so I, my apologies. $24 trillion is on balance sheet liabilities. But that doesn't include the net present value of entitlements. When your viewers look at me in the screen, they see what an on balance sheet liability is. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So it's important to understand the quantum, first of all. We're not $24 trillion in debt. We're $124 trillion in debt. Is that serviceable? Well, you service it from the national income, which is taxes and fees, less expenses. The problem is that the national income is also in deficit, $2 trillion a year. But maybe they teach better math in Great Britain uh, than we teach here, but I don't understand how you add a, col a column of negative numbers and arrive at a positive sum. Um, 
So I would say no. The only thing that keeps us afloat, I think, uh, and keeps U.S. Treasury securities, the world benchmark securities, and U.S. dollars as the reserve currencies. <laughs> this is horrible to say. But as pathetic as we are, we're better than anybody else. Uh, You're the least pathetic. The, the United States is very competitive, and we, we are endeavoring right now to win the race to the bottom. Uh, but the Euro and the Canadians and the Aussies and the Japanese are, in that sense, enjoying a, a great head start. Uh, Doug Casey described the U.S. dollar as the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse, which might be a bit harsh. Um, but the circumstance that we're in today, uh, unless you can't do your arithmetic, is very challenging. Let's, look, let's unpack it three ways. <clears throat> the first is quantitative easing. If you and I did it, it would be called counterfeiting. Uh, it debases the currency. There can be no doubt about that. Making a whole bunch of new currency units out of thin air debases the currency. Now, you and I both probably have some problem with the people who, who are creating these false currency units too, but that's not arithmetic, that's personal. The second is different. Uh, quantitative easing is one thing. The debt and the deficits are a different thing. The debt and the deficits challenge, of course, the current account, uh, the income statement, while they obliterate the balance sheet. And so at the same time that we're debasing the currency by four trillion, three or four trillion dollars a year, we are adding to the aggregate debt, including the uh, off-balance sheet, net present value of off-balance sheet liabilities, by another three or four trillion dollars a year. And then the third leg of the stool, if that's what you might call it, uh, is artificially low interest rates. The interest rate is, of course, the reward that savers get for subsidizing spenders. They at once preserve the purchasing power of the money that's been lent, and they reward you for taking the risk. Uh, the problem with that is that we don't have interest rates anymore. We have negative interest rates, which is to say you're being penalized to save. I understand why this is. We exist in functioning or semi-functioning democracies. Uh, the circumstance that we have now uh, really constitutes a, a tax on savers to benefit spenders. And in a democracy, spenders are much more numerous than savers. There's a wonderful saying in the Western United States that an election is where four coyotes, small dog-like predators, and a lamb vote on the lunch menu. And I think that the circumstance that confronts us with regards to quantitative easing, uh, debt and deficits, and the interest rate is very much a function of that vote between four coyotes and a lamb. I must say it gets tiring to be the lamb, so one does the best one can. What's going to happen when everyone works this out? What happens when everyone watches this video and goes, oh boy? You know, when most people watch this video, they'll say, you know what, the big thinkers have handled it somehow. They got us through 2008. They got us through March. I think most people want to consign responsibility for their financial future to other people. Big thinkers. Uh, most people believe that the, the function of politics is to benefit them and defend them from their neighbors <laughs> simultaneously. There's another a couple great political quotes that I think will put this in mind. Uh, you can understand the word politics by examining the root words. Poly, of course, from the Latin for many, but tick from the English colloquial for small blood-sucking insect. If you think about many small blood-sucking insects, you understand something about politics. And then, of course, there was the famous Mencken quote uh, that elections are best understood as advanced auctions of stolen property. And if you take all that into account, I think you understand something about our current circumstance. How long can this go on? We're an innovative world. We create wealth individually faster so far than we managed to steal or waste it collectively. Uh, may that continue. <laughs> uh, as long as the big thinkers are able to maintain confidence in the system, I think that the system can continue to limp along. Uh, I myself have decided to maintain very large cash balances, despite the fact that I understand that the purchasing power of my cash is declining on an ongoing basis. I believe that the declining purchasing power is an option premium that I have to pay because cash will give me the means and the liquidity to take advantage of volatility rather than to be taken advantage of. And I consider precious metals to be very good liquidity. Uh, 
volatile liquidity to be sure, but I would love to see somebody try and quantitatively ease gold or silver. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to counterfeit over time. So, you know, my own defense mechanism uh, is to try and divorce myself from the prevailing ethos as much as I can and to prepare myself to become, in the Taleb phrase, anti-fragile. These are great topics. I, I, I'm really excited, and I hope I get the opportunity to talk to you again. I'm conscious of time, because I know you have another call. Well, frankly, I, I love the circumstance. Too many interviews. It's, uh, well, Rick, what do you think of uh, consolidated orangutan? Will it be 45 cents by Christmas? And, you know, honestly, I have no idea. These are much more amusing interviews for me. Great. Well, I'm glad you glad you said that. It's, it's been fascinating. I, I, I like. I do love your phraseology, and I do. I do love your 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 you know grasp and execution of the English language when when doing these interviews with some, with some groups. And I I do feel that sometimes the importance of what you said isn't necessarily always grasped. And you do beat a few drums very loudly. And long may you continue to, because I think they're the super bits of advice. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, whatever the rest of the day holds in store for you. And let's talk soon. I look forward to it. Uh, Callie can always schedule it. And I look forward to doing this. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com. And of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback. So please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.